carrying on in our next portion of Acts. It's a fairly short passage, some common ground to last week, but starting with a step back in time. Not so much, meanwhile, back at the ranch as ten years ago. So if you'd like to turn to Acts 11, verse 19, we read, Now those who'd been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed travelled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus and Antioch, spreading the word only among Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. News of this reached the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw what the grace of God had done, he was glad, and encouraged them to all remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. During this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and through the Spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. And this happened during the reign of Claudius. The disciples, as each one was able, decided to provide help for the brothers and sisters living in Judea. And this they did, sending their gift to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. And so with this account, Luke takes us back ten, maybe twelve years to the early days of the church in chapter 8 of Acts, which we read a few weeks ago, when things really got nasty in Jerusalem. Stephen was killed, and the Jerusalem church was persecuted. Now you remember that Jesus said to the apostles in Acts chapter 1, just before his ascension, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Then at Pentecost, Jews from all over the known world heard the disciples speaking about what God had done. And then when Peter explained what was going on, large numbers were convinced and baptised in the name of Jesus. And we're told that after that, the group of believers in Jesus Christ carried on growing. But you can't help but notice that the emphasis, and as Luke tells it, was definitely on Jerusalem. So Acts 6, 7... The word of God continued to spread. The number of disciples increased greatly in Jerusalem. Stephen's preaching and his subsequent killing ensured that Jerusalem disciples didn't all stay in Jerusalem, though. And at Acts 8.1, he tells us, That day a severe persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout the countryside of Judea and Samaria. And a few verses later, verse 4, Now those that were scattered went from place to place, proclaiming the word. It seems likely that the worst of the persecution fell on Greek-speaking Jews, since they'd have found it harder to blend in, in Aramaic-speaking Jerusalem. And they were scattered. So then we hear that Philip went down to Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah to them. And as people responded, the apostles joined him and they preached in many villages of the Samaritans. So we've got to Samaria. Now we Jerusalem, Judea, 
some area all covered. It's time for the gospel to spread beyond the region where Yahweh and his Messiah were familiar ideas. I suppose the church in Jerusalem might have organised and trained teams of cross-cultural missionaries, sent them out into the Greek and Roman world, would be a popular idea today, Fine, trained people with skills in anthropology, linguistics, culturally sensitive, and able to present a suitably nuanced gospel to the Gentiles, then send them out according to a plan. God seems to have had a simpler idea. He used the persecution of the Jerusalem church to scatter ordinary believers across the Roman Empire, which gets us back to the main reading and the arrival of some of those refugees in Phoenicia, Cyprus and Antioch. I've been very light-hearted about it, but you shouldn't romanticise what happened. <clears throat> Acts 8.3 tells us these people had been dragged from their homes by zealots like Saul and were imprisoned. Persecution like this was hard and painful. And there were casualties. People were getting hurt, losing their homes, their livelihoods. And especially believers, the Greeks, particularly the Greek-speaking ones, being driven away from Judea as refugees. But there may have been refugees but they're also missionaries. And as they went about trying to resettle and rebuild lives in new places, they talked to their new neighbours and their friends about their Messiah, Jesus. In Antioch, some of those neighbours weren't Jews. Now, Antioch's a lot different from Jerusalem. Founded about 300 years earlier by Seleucus I, one of Alexander the Great's generals. Alexander the Great reference for Richard, but he's not here, never mind. And Seleucus named it in honour of his father, Antiochus. In fact, he was so keen on naming cities after his father that he did it 15 or 16 times. He also, by the way, named five cities Laodicea in honour of his mother, including Laodicea on the Lycus River that we hear about later in Colossians and in Revelation, but we digress. Of the many Antiochs, this one is Antioch on the Orontes River in Syria. It's about 250 miles north of Jerusalem as the crow flies. And it was the capital of the Seleucid Empire until 63 BC when the Romans arrived. And it's though one of the most important cities in the Roman Empire, perhaps the third largest, noted for its trade, its wealth and its lax morals. If all roads led to Rome, then quite a few of them led to Antioch. And it had a, what you might call a mission statement, which we can see stamped on coins that archaeologists have found. Antioch, metropolis, sacred and inviolable and autonomous and sovereign and capital of the East. So not exactly a shy and retiring sort of city. In Antioch you can find lots of Jews, along with Jewish proselytes of varying degrees, from full-on circumcised converts to those who admired the Jewish faith and just kept some of the rules. But of course the majority are pagans, some religious, some rather less so, and some enthusiasts who worship Daphne and Apollo in these notorious religious orgies. And if you're looking for a strategic city to take for Christ, you might well choose Antioch, except you probably wouldn't plan to do it with a random bunch of refugees. But God had other ideas. Now we know traditionally Jews didn't associate much with unclean Gentiles. But in a city like Antioch, some of the traditions weren't quite as strong as Jerusalem. 
Luke tells us that most of the refugees kept their faith conversations to other Jews. But some of them, from the island of Cyprus, the port city of Cyrene in Africa, were prepared to talk to Gentiles about what was important to them. About their God, his plan for the world, about Jesus of Nazareth, God's Messiah, or his Christ in Greek. And how they'd been changed by coming to know and trust this Christ. And when they talked, they also proclaimed Lord Jesus. Luke uses here two different words for, for talking to people. because the ordinary talking and then the word from which we get evangelise. In 11.20 here, as, as we did in Acts, for the preaching by the scattered believers in Judea and Samaria. This is, as people listened to the conversation about Jesus and became interested, they followed it up. Bolder, more direct proclamation. And Luke tells us the hand of the Lord was with them. And so a great number of these Greek speaking Gentiles became believers and turned to the Lord. Now Jesus had said, Be my witnesses to the ends of the earth, but until now, that in practice meant witnesses to Jews or Jewish converts. Here in Antioch, so to speak, the gospel goes over the wall into the non-Jewish world. And God had his hand on them as they shared their stories. It's only God can change people's hearts. He's actually always the one in charge of events, no matter how strong or how inadequate our efforts seem to be. It seems obvious now that the gospel needed to go over the wall from Jew to Gentile, but it was radical at the time. It was a given among most Jews that Yahweh was the God of Israel. And only Jews could relate to him. There were rules by which a non-Jew could cross over and give their loyalty to the God of Israel. But the idea that Messiah would come to redeem Gentiles without their first becoming Jews hadn't really occurred to most people at this point. And besides, keeping up the wall was one of the ways you showed Yahweh that you loved him. You obeyed the law and you kept yourself separate from unclean Gentiles as an act of worship. Remember, Simeon had prophesied over the baby Jesus a few days after his birth, quoting Isaiah that the child would be a light for revelation to the Gentiles as well as for glory to the people of Israel. But it took a while for that to work through the traditional barriers between Jews and Gentiles. I was reading this passage, I was struck by the question of whether we still have categories of people that we wouldn't talk to about Jesus Christ because somewhere in our thinking we've already decided the message isn't really for them. People whose clothes or his accent say they probably follow another faith or they're part of another culture so they won't want to hear about Jesus. People whose lifestyle says they've clearly chosen another path and they're not going to change. People who we wouldn't even share a meal with because they're unclean sinners and would contaminate us. People in other words who aren't like us and wouldn't fit in church anyway. People who are like the Greeks to those first Jewish believers. I don't mean by that that you should find such an individual tomorrow morning and force a tract down their throat. But it might mean allowing yourself to talk more freely about Jesus when colleagues ask you what you do outside of work or talk about their spirituality and want to hear about yours. Not sidestepping the conversation because, of course, they wouldn't be interested anyway. Or just being with them makes me feel dirty. 
Perhaps they would listen despite my prejudices. Perhaps the hand of the Lord would be with you in unexpected places and unexpected people. Worked in Antioch after all. And in a post-Christian multicultural nation like ours, perhaps we all need to work a bit on our cross-cultural witness. Anyway, and word of these Gentile believers got back to Jerusalem, it was decided that a reliable man should go and check it out. So Joseph the Levite from Cyprus, better known by his nickname of Barnabas, or the son of encouragement, re-enters our story. It seems that the leaders in Jerusalem trusted his judgment, and they sent him off to Antioch to see what was going on. When Barnabas came to Antioch, what he saw going on was the grace of God. He saw lives changed by the love of God, believers in Jesus sharing that love with each other and those around them. Barnabas didn't really have a model for what Gentile believers in Jesus Christ would look like. No one did. But he knew the grace of God when he saw it, and he rejoiced. And sometimes we can come across the grace of God in unexpected places and need to resist the temptation to reject it because the situation's unfamiliar to us. The situations in Barnabas' day didn't come much more unfamiliar than Greek-speaking Gentiles worshipping Jesus Christ. But he saw past the prejudices to recognise the work of God. Barnabas wasn't critical that the refugees had taken this step of evangelising Gentiles without consulting the apostles. Nor, having seen what God was doing in Antioch, did Barnabas hit them with a bunch of rules and regulations about how to do church the Jerusalem way. He simply urged them, first and foremost, to stay faithful to the Lord. Keep the main thing the main thing. According to my commentary, Barnabas is the only person described as good in Acts. Luke says he was full of the Holy Spirit and faith. It's not a bad description to aspire to. He was just the man to recognise what God was doing in Antioch and join in. And as Barnabas encouraged this new church, it was getting bigger. Growing cross-cultural church in the third city of the empire. Big, unprecedented opportunity and there was a need for strong teaching. The original refugees probably hadn't included many believers who were trained to teach and explain scripture. So while they'd shared what they knew, and they'd obviously shared it very effectively, the new Greek believers would not have had even a basic Jewish education about God, and would have had a lot of questions, and probably a few misconceptions based on how pagan religions worked. So there was a lot to do. And it seems that Barnabas, capable as he was, realised he needed help and he thought he knew just the man for the job. And you remember that back in Acts 9, when things got too hot, the church in Jerusalem sent Saul back to Tarsus. It was his home city, and better still, it was 350 miles away from the people that wanted to kill him. We don't honestly know exactly what Saul got up to in Tarsus, but we can guess that he carried on preaching and arguing refining his message, digging into the scriptures to strengthen his understanding of the Messiah. He's probably also trying to convince friends and family, the ones he grew up with, that Jesus of Nazareth was the Messiah. He's to write later about those of his own race that rejected Jesus. In, in Romans 9 verse 2 it says, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart for his fellow Israelites. And that, that isn't just an abstract argument. He knew some of their names. He knew the pain that's familiar to some of us of seeing people who know and love refuse the message of salvation through Jesus Christ. 
And he kept praying, kept praying for them. Despite the opportunities that were about to open up among Gentiles and foreigners, Paul never gave up on his own kindred. But now it seems that through these years when Paul was doing whatever Paul was doing, in his home territory, Barnabas had kept in touch. In the absence of instant messaging, he didn't know exactly where to find him. Some scholars speculate he'd been thrown out of the family home in Tarsus because of his new faith and was preaching from town to town in Syria and Cilicia, but we're not sure. Paul later refers to having had more troubles and more shipwrecks than Luke reports. In Acts 15.41, after he had a row with Barnabas, we're told that Paul went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. These are churches we don't otherwise know about, so maybe he founded them during the Tarsus years? Quite possibly. Can't be certain, but anyway, Barnabas tracked him down and persuaded him to come to Antioch. Now, inviting Saul to town was a risk. He had a proven record of attracting trouble and even plots on his life. And if Barnabas cared about his own reputation, then Saul, with his talents, education and religious zeal, could be seen as a rival. But Barnabas brought him anyway. And the two of them worked for a year, teaching great many people. Even in a large city, used to big events and big ideas, the church got noticed. These weird, not-quite-Jews attracted attention. And they even got a new name, Christianoi. Now, apparently the Roman army gave nicknames to units based on their commander's names. So if the general was Flavius, you were Flavians. If you're Caesar, Caesarians and so on. So these people were always talking about Christ, so they became Christians. Now maybe it was meant to be scornful, like calling people Jesus freaks or whatever, but it stuck. And Christians, they were from then on. And in the middle of all this excitement, as Barnabas and Saul stirring up the church in Antioch, a group of prophets arrived from Jerusalem. Now, it's the first time we've heard of there being specialist prophets in Jerusalem, in the church, so we don't know how they were organised and where they fitted in. It'd be really handy if, from time to time in Acts, Luke gave us an organisation chart for who was doing what. But that guess wasn't his purpose. He simply tells us that some prophets arrived from Jerusalem, and while they were there, the Holy Spirit gave Agabus a predictive prophecy of a famine. Hopefully... Everyone knows that prophecy in the Bible is about a lot more than predicting the future. And if that sounds odd to you, then Richard did some valuable teaching on prophecy a little while ago, and I think the notes and the recordings might still be available. But on this occasion, the prophecy was predicting the future, and the future was famine, which we know happened around AD 46 or 47 in Judea. Now, the obvious thing to do after that was to start stockpiling food, but it seems that their first thought wasn't the obvious one at all. Instead, they took a collection to send to Jerusalem, to a Jewish city, a Jewish church in a city that many of these new Gentile Christians probably hadn't ever seen. So prophecy had given them more than information. It stirred them to generosity towards their fellow believers in Judea. When the Spirit speaks through prophecy to us, we can expect God's Spirit to stir up our, our spirit in response. It's more than just information comes when the Spirit speaks. And you could say that this 
response, generous response by the Gentiles of Antioch to the Jewish believers helped widen the wall, the breach in the wall between Jew and Gentile. Sharing fellowship, particularly in this culture, is a very practical way of demonstrating their family. Partners, despite the distance, despite the ethnic differences. In the process of collecting the money, the Christians in Antioch also established something else that would become a bit of a pattern for later offerings taken by Paul and others. It says they all gave according to their ability. Not everyone could give the same amount, but those that were well off gave a lot, those that were had little gave less. There doesn't seem to be any pressure or embarrassment around the offering. They simply gave in proportion to what they had, handed it over to Barnabas and Paul to take to the elders at Jerusalem. And they don't seem to have asked the elders for a report or even a receipt. They simply trusted them to get on with it and use the money well for those in need. When I was reading through this passage, it's one of the words that came to my, to my mind, particularly was, was this generosity. The refugees from persecution were generous. They shared the good news they had. They you know, some of them had little else but good news. <laughs> the clothes they stood up in, but they shared it with their new neighbours in Antioch, overcoming prejudice as they did so. And Barnabas, seeing what God was doing in Antioch, generously calls in a man that others might have seen as a rival to help build the church. And then as that church grows, hearing of hard times ahead through the Spirit, they thought first of their poorer fellow believers in Jerusalem and generously sent money to help them. There's a pattern of giving giving what you have, risking your reputation, risking seeing a rival. You know, we know that Barnabas, Barnabas and Saul becomes Paul and Barnabas, and eventually just Paul, as Acts goes on, is in some ways pushed aside by Paul's rising star. But he doesn't seem to have minded in the least. Barnabas simply do, did what was necessary. He, got, he needed help, he brought in someone he knew could help, even though that man might in some, be seen as eclipsing him one day. And it also struck me as it's ironic, if, you, if that's the word, if you look back at this passage, the terrible events of Acts 7 and 8, you can see how persecuting the church backfired. Not only did the persecution help in God's grace to spread the gospel into new territory, but this Gentile-containing church in Antioch was able and willing to send aid to the Jerusalem church in its turn when it was threatened by famine. The enemies of the church applied their power, their hostility, and the church, though it's hurt and apparently powerless, replied with generosity and love as it grew despite its troubles. That the persecution that was intended to crush the church has actually spread it into new territories and new peoples. I think this really fulfills what Jesus himself said, that he, he builds his church and the gates, the authorities, the powers of hell just aren't able to stand against it, just as he said it would. It's his church, and if we'll go with him, he'll spread the gospel. He'll produce a response. He'll break down the barriers. You want to well, Nat returns with her, with her band. Bijou band this morning, but they were sounding nice, I thought. 
Let's just pray. Father, we thank you that through all that the world can and does throw at the church across time and across the nations, the very real persecutions that many of our fellow believers face, that you are building your church, that you have your hand on your gospel and that you will fulfill it. Help us to get alongside what you're doing and trust the gospel to spread as your gracious hand guides us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.